0: You know, we saw this morning, if you were here, we looked at Acts chapter 2 and down through verse 41, how individuals that they realized that as this day unfolded uh, that first, that God kept his promises um, or keeps his promises, that these apostles specifically, uh, there was, they were told, as we said, uh, to tarry in Jerusalem till they received power from on high. Uh, it was something that um, uh, that Joel had prophesied approximately 800 years previously. Uh, we saw the fulfillment of that in, in Acts chapter 2. And Peter said, these are these things which Joel uh, prophesied in the last days, and he went on. And then we saw uh, Peter's argument, and, and in addition, not just Peter, but the other apostles, I believe, were preaching at the same time, their argument that... Um, Jesus, who is both Lord and Christ, he's more than a mere man. The miracles of God gave evidence of that, that God raised him from the grave, gave evidence of that. Uh, Prophecy of old gave evidence of that. And the fact that he now sits at the right hand of God uh, gave evidence that he is both Lord and Christ. And then we saw what is the proper response. And of course... Uh, Many of us are familiar with it. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Well, then what? What then? Well, I think Acts chapter 2 and verse 42 answers that question. Have your Bibles, turn back to Acts chapter 2 again, and notice in verse 42 there, as this account continues of that, Day of Pentecost, the first Pentecost after the resurrection of Christ. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. In other words, now that they were Christians, now that they were children of God, now that their sins have been washed by the blood of the Lamb, now that they had been added to them who already were believers and servants of Christ, Here's the life that they had to live. So now that I'm a Christian, now that we are Christians, we must continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Well, then that brings up a question. What is the apostles' doctrine? The word doctrine merely means teaching. And the answer to that, and I think sometimes we we maybe know it but we don't voice it, is that the apostles' teaching was Christ's teaching. You know, we live in a world where, you know, do you have a red letter Bible? Well, yeah, I have a red letter Bible. Those are the words of Jesus. And and sometimes we say, like, say it like, oh, those are the most important words in the Bible. But everything in the New Testament are the words of Jesus. The things that God wants us to do, the way He wants us to behave are the teachings of Jesus. We go back to John chapter, um, uh, again, 14, 15, and 16. In John chapter 14 and verse 26, as we read this morning, Jesus said he was going to send a helper. He says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send, notice, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all, All things that I, Jesus speaking, I said to you. In John chapter 15 and verse 26. So when the helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. John chapter 16 verses 12 through 14. for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. So here's Jesus telling those apostles that moved with him for approximately three and a half years that I'm going to send a comforter and he's going to guide you into all truth. He's going to bring into remembrance all the things that I've taught you and he's going to tell you some things that you're not ready to receive yet. In other words, but what he's telling you is a message from me. And then the Apostle Paul, who struggled much of his Apostle life with dealing with the fact that some denied his Apostleship, wrote in his letter to the Galatians in chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, he says, But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, for I neither received it from man nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the point here is that the apostles' doctrine is Christ's doctrine. It's the message, the doctrine of Jesus Christ. Well, what does it mean to continue steadfastly in it? One, it means to obey it. Romans chapter 6, verse 17, Paul says, But God be thanked that though you were yet slaves of sin, you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. Here's a doctrine, they obeyed it. 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 16, we read Paul writing to Timothy, Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine, continue in them, for in doing this you will save both yourself and those who hear you. So, when it comes to the doctrine of the apostles, the teaching of the apostles, you and I, as New Testament Christians, are to obey it. Not only are we to obey it, we're to exhort others not to teach any other doctrine, but... The doctrine of the apostles. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, Paul, writing to Timothy, says, Now I urge you, when you went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus, that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine. And if there are those that are teaching another doctrine, we are to mark and note and avoid them. Romans chapter 16, verse 17 now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned, and avoid them. Leaders are to use it to exhort the gainsayer, setter, uh, gain setter, to convict those that are acting and teaching contrary to the doctrine. Titus chapter 1 verse 9 in the qualifications of an elder that they are to hold fast the faithful word which he has been taught that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict and it is the standard the apostles doctrine the teaching of Christ is the standard for our relationship with God to maintain fellowship with God. 2 John verses 9 and 10. Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house nor greet him. So what does it mean to, be, to uh, uh, continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine? It means if I'm a Christian and I want to be a faithful Christian, then I must continue steadfastly in that doctrine. In other words, I need to hold fast to it. Secondly, they continued steadfastly in the Apostles' doctrine and fellowship. Well, what does fellowship mean? Primarily, the meaning of fellowship is joint participation. In other words, we are participating when we are in fellowship we are participating jointly in something. And it can be in very different different ways. It means if we want to be in fellowship with God, if we want to participate jointly with these blessings that God wants to shower upon us, then we must walk in the light as he is in the light. Notice 1 John verses 5 through 7. This is the message that we have heard from him and declare to you. That God is light and in him is there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk not in darkness, or walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ his son cleanses us from all all sin. So if we want to participate jointly with, with God and all that entails, and with his Christ and his church and all, the kingdom and all that, then we must walk in the light as God is in the light. In other words, when we sin, we confess that sin, as John will go on to say. We acknowledge it, we repent of it and seek his uh, forgiveness of it through prayer as Christians. It means fellowship, to continue steadfastly in fellowship. It means to cooperate in the work of the gospel. In Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, Paul writing to the brethren at Philippi, he says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you you all with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. And if you continue through the, the letter there to the Philippians, we come to realize that they had helped support Paul in his work and prayed for him, helped him financially. They had even been, from the context there at the end, suggest that they were like his overseeing congregation and the fact funds came to them and they distributed them to Paul. But the point was is that they participated jointly with Paul in that work of the gospel and so part of fellowship is that we participate in the work of the gospel Uh, you've probably heard me say many times and maybe Daniel or or David or Chad or Forrest and others that have gone on mission trips that you know some can't go but you can help send and in doing so you are participating in that work. And so part of fellowship, joint participation, is, is sharing in the work of the gospel. It may be going, maybe may be praying for it, it may be supporting it financially, but participating jointly in it. And then the third way it means to continue steadfastly in the fellowship is to help those in need. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 3 and 4, Paul says... For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing and employing us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. In chapter 9, verse 12 and 13, he says along that same context, for the administration of this service not only supplies the needs of the saints, but also abounding through many thanksgivings to God, while through the proof of this ministry they glorify God for the obedience of your confession to the gospel of Christ and for your liberal sharing. Sharing there is fellowship with them and all men. So fellowship can carry the idea of helping those in need, as we saw there in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And chapter nine. In other words, we are participating jointly in their poverty. Not that we're becoming impoverished, but that we're helping them in their time of poverty or in their time of need. And of course, we see that all the time. In, in you know, presently with our congregation, uh, we hear that there's a need, and and you know, many of us are are right there with our checkbooks, or our cash, or our credit cards to help those uh, that are suffering. So as a Christian. I must continue steadfastly in fellowship. Have to continue steadfastly in the apostles doctrine. Have to continue steadfastly in in, uh, fellowship. And then thirdly, I must continue steadfastly in the breaking of bread. Contrary to what just occurred in the room to my left, that's not what he's talking about. I think in this context, he's talking about worship. In other words, Worship is to be part of our life. We're to continue steadfastly in our worship to God. Acts chapter 20 and verse 7, we see a verse there. Those in Troas, on the first day of the week when they came together to break bread, uh, Paul continued preaching unto midnight. So obviously the context there is not a meal, but the participation in worship and breaking bread was a figure of speech for the Lord's Supper. Uh, It's very similar to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16, where we read, The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? The word communion there is a word that suggests, again, fellowship. So what does it mean to continue steadfastly in worship? Because clearly, those who became Christians on that day of Pentecost, that was part of their life from that moment on. Well, it means I'll worship as God directs. I mean, how can I be in fellowship with God? How can I continue in, in, in breaking bread and continue steadfastly in worship if I don't do what God says? And as many of us knows, that's partaking of the Lord's Supper every Sunday. Acts chapter 20, verse 7, that's singing and making melody in our heart. Um Ephesians 5 verse 19, Colossians 3 verse 16, it's praying continuously, 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 17, and giving as we prospered, 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2. It also means I will worship when God directs. In other words, there are those in the religious world that say, well, we can worship on Saturday. Or we can worship on Thursday night. We even have some brethren that I've been told among us that say we can take the Lord's Supper on Thursday night. We had a few years ago, we had a brother representing a, a, an agency local that helps children. And he came and was presenting about the, uh, the work of that group. And, and we told them we had some concerns about... Uh, some of the people that they were having on a uh, program that was occurring there on their property. And he said, well, you know, along that line, here's this other person uh, that teaches we can take the Lord's Supper on Thursday. So, no, we have to worship when God directs. And it's clear from Acts chapter 20, verse 7, 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 and 2, when it comes to that, that, Corporate worship in which we partake the Lord's Supper, which we give it collectively, that that has to be on the first day of the week. It means I will not make a habit if I'm going to continue steadfastly in worshiping, breaking of bread. It means I will not make a habit of forsaking the assembling together of, our, of the saints. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day approaching. In other words, God wants us to be with the saints when they assemble. That's just bottom line. So if I'm going to continue steadfastly in worship, I have to do it as the way God says I have to do when God says, when he expects me to be here, and I'm not to make it a habit of forsaking it. I need to be here at all times when they gather, unless there's extenuating circumstances that I cannot be here. And needless to say, the Super Bowl's not extenuating circumstances. Um, I had a, a brother that sort of took me under my, his wing when I was younger, and he always got a chuckle that... Uh, you know, sometimes, and you probably have heard this, and it may have even been said here, but I, I can't remember specific. You'll get a, you know, on Sunday night, when, when those that couldn't be here on Sunday morning, obviously the person will give a prayer. And, and they'll say, Lord, you know, we gather around and we offer these brethren uh, an opportunity, those who were providentially uh, unable to come and worship with us this morning. And if you think about that, does that mean that God caused them not to be with the saints in the morning? You know, when you think we're providentially hindered, so maybe it was just an inside joke anyway. Anyway, but as a Christian, I must continue steadfastly in worship. And then finally, in that those four things that Paul meant or that uh, Luke mentions there in Acts chapter two, as a Christian, I must continue steadfastly in prayers. Well, what does that mean? To you steadfastly in prayers. First means to pray regularly. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17, Paul writing to the church in Thessalonica, pray without ceasing. In other words, if I'm a Christian, then, then prayer should be part of my life. I should pray regularly. Whether you do a morning prayer or an evening prayer, or you pray before your meals, whatever it is, prayer should be part of your life. Pray regularly. Secondly, it means to pray fervently. This is not a conversation like you have with your wife or your husband or your children. It means to have some fervency in your prayer. In James chapter 5 and verse 16, James says, The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Or the prayer of a righteous man, as one translation says, has much power in it's working. In other words... We are to prayer with it, you know, fervently, like, God, I mean this. This is not just some words I'm throwing out, but I mean there's, there's some force behind that. There's some desire behind that. And then thirdly, it means to pray expectantly. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 14 and 15, John writes, now this is the confidence that we have in him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. In other words, when we pray, we should pray, pray expectantly that God is going to respond to our prayer. And if we ask according to his will, and if it is his will, then God will answer that prayer. Now, if it's not his will, his answer is no. And sometimes his answer is you just got to hold on for a while. It's not the right time. But if we ask, we should ask confidently that, you know, if it's his will, that he would respond. And so we should pray expecting an answer from God. And, And hopefully as Christians, we're not going to ask or pray God something that we know is not his will because obviously we know he's not going to respond favorably to that. So as a Christian, I must continue steadfastly in prayers. And so when we look in Acts chapter 2 and verse 42 as we close out here, that once these individuals became Christians, as we often tell when we're studying, that that's just the beginning. That's just stepping off the platform of being lost and on to the platform of being saved. And if we want to continue to have that relationship with God, we have to continue steadfastly in the Apostles' doctrine, which is Christ's doctrine. We have to continue steadfastly in fellowship. We have to continue steadfastly in our worship. And we have to continue steadfastly in our prayers. praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added through the church daily those who were being saved. It's easy to understand why Brother Bale said that Acts was the hub of the Bible. As we look at the Gospels, as John says in John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, many other things were written, but these were written that you might believe and in believing have life in his name. So they were to teach us about how to come to faith in Christ. And Acts tells us what to do with that faith. Once we realize and we believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, then we must repent and be baptized for the remission of our sins. And we begin that life as a child of God, and then we must continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and in fellowship, in the breaking of bread worship, and in prayer. And the Lord added those who were being saved. Who were those being saved? Those who responded as the Acts chapter 2 taught that came to a faith of Christ, and those who continue steadfastly in those things that they did. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. So if you're here this afternoon and you're not part of the Lord's church then you're not saved. But if you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, then the proper response is to repent and be baptized. We offer you that opportunity this afternoon. If you think that you do not know or you think that you or you believe that you're not convinced that Jesus is the Son of God, There's no neutral position in this. There's no area where I can say, you know, well, I'm not saying that he isn't, but I'm not saying that he is. God doesn't allow us that. Either we're for him or we're against him. So if you're not sure, then I urge you To either study your Bible yourself or study with Him. If you choose to make the decision based on the evidence that Jesus is not the Christ, then that's your choice. But I believe with all my heart that if you truly will give the Bible an opportunity, that you will come to the reasonable conclusion that Jesus is both Lord and Christ, and that he is your savior, and that through him, you can spend eternity with God in heaven. If we can help in any way, won't you come as we sing this song of encouragement?